Good morning and a very warm welcome to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gale. And yes, folks, as you can hear, my nose is stuffed with a cold, but no worries. Today, joining us will be Pastor Phil, who is sharing his next installment on the book of Jonah. And yes, it's been a while since we've heard from him. But just to let you know, to catch up quickly, the last time that we were speaking, Jonah had been in the bottom of the fish. And we were looking at the impact of that upon Jonah's life, where he goes and calls out to God in repentance. And now we are at the point where we're headed for Nineveh. Later on, Crystal, pastor of Tullamore Bible Church, will be joining us with his next installment, Discovering the Real Jesus, part number five, where we again take up the story of Nicodemus and that very famous passage of scripture, more of which we will hear, of course, later on. But first, to begin, we are going to have a hymn. And then after that hymn, Charlize is going to read to us Psalm 8, which is the lectionary psalm for today. So, the hymn. Thou whose almighty word chaos and darkness heard and took their flight, hear us, we humbly pray. And where the glorious day sheds not its glorious ray, let there be light. Today we go and celebrate the Trinity, that God is the triune God. And that is what this hymn goes on to speak about, the wonder-working power of God through the three persons. Blessed and holy three, glorious Trinity, wisdom, love, might, boundless as ocean's tide, rolling in fullness pride through the world far and wide, let there be light. That, of course, is extracts from the hymn written by John Marriott, who lived in 1780 to 1825. We'll read from Psalms 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We have just listened to the reading of Psalm 8 by Charlize and then listened to Psalm 8 sung to us in chant. When I consider the psalm, just one of the verses that always jumps out of me from this psalm is verse 4 and 5. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honour. When we consider the world, the creation of this universe, the intricate detail that goes into every little facet of our world, isn't it amazing that when this world was created and only two people were living upon it, 
Yes, God had provided enough oxygen for 8 billion people. Isn't it interesting that when there was only two people living upon us, that there was enough food, or this world was in a position to be able to provide enough food for 8 billion people? The biggest issue is man, human beings, like you and me, humanity. We are the ones who create the difficulties in regard to the management of God's resources. And yet this question that the psalmist asks right here in the middle of the psalm, what is man, what is humanity, that you are mindful of them? Or the son of man, that you care for him? Isn't that a question that we actually wrestle with greatly when we consider our insignificance against the magnitude of this world? And yet God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honour. God has given us dominion over the works of his hands and has put all things under our feet. Sobering thought, I would think. What do you think when you consider your humanity against the backdrop of creation? Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. Next up, we are going to have Pastor Phil speaking to us about his next instalment of Jonah's journey. I know it's been a while since the last one, but now Jonah has come out of the fish, the big fish, and he's on his way to Nineveh. And so Pastor Phil is speaking to us about the impact of Jonah upon Nineveh and God's plan there. But first, another hymn around the topic of the Trinity. This hymn is Father in whom we live, in whom we are and move. Glory and power and praise receive of thy creating love. Let all the angels throng give thanks to God on high, while earth repeats the joyful song and echoes of the sky. Charles Wesley Hymn. Welcome again, folks, to Treasuring Jesus, where we've been looking at the Old Testament story of the prophet Jonah. I don't know how long it took for Jonah to get to Nineveh, but I'm guessing that he had plenty of time to think about what he was going to say. Let's pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, and offered, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? 
Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Picture the scene, if you will. One morning the gates of the city of Nineveh open, and in walks Jonah. Bleached because of the gastric juices of the great fish and no doubt with a stench that kept people at a safe distance. Nineveh had never seen his like before. The city would take three whole days to cross. So Jonah got about preaching straight away. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 39 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Only 38 days to go and Nineveh will be overthrown. It was a message of judgment, pure and simple. Now you have to admit that people do not like to think of God as a God of judgment. But it's a fact, unavoidable in scripture. God is holy and he must always punish sin. And the Ninevites certainly had plenty that deserved God's punishment. The Assyrian capital was notoriously evil. But maybe too many of us read Paul's words in the book of Romans. You know what I mean? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we nod our heads and say, well, yes. But I'm certainly not as bad as so-and-so. And I'm certainly not as bad as that group over there. Truth is... We are. We are all just as bad in going our own way, in shutting God out of our lives, and in rejecting his offer of salvation in the cross of Jesus. And when God judges, as he must, he always does so with a heavy heart. His longing is that people repent, turning away from their sin in thought and in word and in deed. And in Nineveh, led by the king, that's what the people did. And even the livestock clothed with sackcloth to demonstrate how complete was their repentance. Now, maybe it was too much to expect that this God, whom they hadn't known, would show them mercy. But he did teaching us that even when we are convicted of his judgment, we should run to his love. Picture Willie Mullen, having drifted into a life of drunkenness and debauchery, far away from what he had learned from a godly mother. He's now standing in a field outside of Newton Arts, and he's twisting his cap in an agony of conviction. He'd heard a faithful gospel preacher warn of God's coming day of wrath and couldn't deny that he deserved what it would bring. But God reminded him of his love and mercy in Jesus. And that day, Willie Mullen was transformed as he came to Christ. Folks, and aren't you glad that God's mercy is extended to you and to me as well? Bow with me in prayer. Merciful God, thank you that you have made a way for sinners like us to escape your righteous judgment. Thank you that repentance and faith in our crucified Saviour brings cleansing and new life in him. We bring you our praise in his worthy name.
Amen. Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill, where we are looking at Psalm 8. The opening line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The word there, O Lord, the first Lord is in capital letters. And then the second Lord is in small letters with a capital L. So the first Lord means Jehovah Adonai, the Lord our Sovereign, the Creator of the world, the One who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the One who is the Supreme Ruler, O Lord, the Supreme Ruler, Jehovah Adonai, God our Sovereign, our Lord. And so what it's doing is it's bringing God in all of His grandeur, might, power, authority, sovereignty, the ultimate king. There is no greater power to being personal. My Lord, our Lord. No longer is this God somewhere out there and untouchable and unreachable. No, this God is a personal God. It is our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Again, speaking of the magnitude, the greatness, and the wonder of who God is. You set your glory above the heavens. So even when we look up at a starry night, even though we see all the stars, even though we see the moon, even though we see the sun on a beautiful sunny day, and those clear blue skies, The magnitude and the glory and the expanse of all of that is still nothing in comparison to the glory of God. The glory of God is even greater than that. And yet, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Isn't it amazing that out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength? Strength, or another translation goes and puts praise. Your little baby, that infant when it is born, when you look at the wonder and the beauty of a newborn child, does it not bring words of praise from your lips? Do you not ooh and ah over it? And go, isn't it beautiful? Look at how wonderful. Look at the little fingers. Oh, look at how cute it is. Of course you do. But it's not only what it draws out of you, it's actually the babe itself goes and praises God just by being it. One of the things that fascinates me, that amazes me, is that every creature that is created worships God by being the very creature that it is. And yet God desires, God longs for that relationship with humanity it is with us that he longs for a relationship but you have freedom of choice and so people choose to reject God people choose to have nothing to do with him and then others like the psalmist here can go and exclaim O Lord our Lord and that God is personal and real to them But the psalmist, as I said, when he looks at the heavens in verse 3 and the works of God's hands, the moon and the stars which have set in place, 
when he looks at the expanse of the sky, when he looks at the glory of creation, the wonders of our world, it brings him back to that question which I went and spoke of earlier on. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care about him. Right there, David is confronted with his insignificance as a person against the backdrop of this world. The odd time when I've gone off for a walk and you just get away from all of civilization and you're out somewhere and you're alone, it's just you and that created world. You suddenly discover that you're only a little minute part in it. And yes, and yes, this is what David goes and says. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. God has crowned you with glory and honour this day. You are the pinnacle of his creation on earth. When God created you, he went and said, it is very good. But that's not only what God did. God went further and he has given us dominion over the works of God's hands. He has placed this world in your hands. He's placed this world in my hands. And he's put everything underneath our feet. So that brings us to the point. If we have dominion, then we have control. We have charge of it. God has placed his world into our care. Question is, what do we do with that? All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, have all been placed in your care and my care. And as David reflects on this again, he comes back to that statement O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic! is your name in all the earth. When you think of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it a name that carries majesty? Is it a name that carries awe? Is it a name that when you hear it from your lips brings inspiration and admiration for the creator of this world? Or... Is it just a name that you use as a curse, as a swear word, and in vain? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you agree with the psalmist? Let me leave that challenge with you. Do you have religion? Or do you have a genuine relationship with God? A very good morning to you once again. This is Pastor Chris from Tullamore Bible Church, and I'm so glad you've joined us again as we continue to look at this series we've entitled Real Jesus, where we try to remove misconceptions about Christ and his teachings and rediscover who he really is from God's Word, the Bible. Last time, we began to look at a story about a man who was deeply religious, but he wasn't right with God. He had religion, but he did not possess a real relationship with God. It's perhaps one of the most famous encounters in the earthly life of Christ, and it's a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. 
It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And if you have a Bible handy, I would invite you to join me there as we get to know the real Jesus from the Word of God. Just to set the scene again, remember Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were a group of religious teachers who were supposed to explain the Scriptures to the people. However, over time, instead of teaching and preaching what God's Word actually said, They gradually fell into teaching and preaching their own traditions, and and that's happened a lot today as well. In other words, they got so fixated with the laws of the Old Testament that they began to create additional laws. They got so focused on rules that they thought would please God that they completely lost sight of a relationship with God. Now, Jesus comes on the scene, and he's talking about something entirely different than trying to please God by means of religious efforts, and quite the contrary, in fact. Jesus is teaching about a relationship with God that is freely offered to everybody, how to know him personally. Nicodemus is intrigued by this teaching, and in spite of tremendous social pressure and culturally accepted religious norms, Nicodemus secretly goes to Jesus by night to find out more. As we left this encounter last time, it was right when Jesus made this very exclusive statement to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse number 3, if you want to look at it there. Jesus answered him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What a statement. I mean, Jesus tells this very religious man that the only way to be part of God's kingdom, part of God's family, is not by being religious, but by being born again. So according to Jesus, being born again, whatever that means, is not optional, but imperative. It's necessary to be right with God. But one of the reasons people have difficulty with this absolute statement of Christ, being born again, is because there's some confusion about what that even means. Now, if you don't know, you're not alone. Nicodemus didn't either. I mean, look at his reply in verse number four. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Now, we'll unpack what this actually means in a moment, but one thing that is obvious here is that Jesus is making it clear to this good religious man that his religion will not get him into the kingdom of God. His rule-keeping will not get him into God's family. Because getting into God's family is not something you do, it's something that is done to you. You have to be born again, born spiritually into God's family becoming a child of God. See, John already alluded to this in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So not to the ones who trust religion to make them right with God, nor to the ones who trust their own ability to keep all of God's laws, but to those who believe or trust in Jesus Christ alone to make them right with God, Those are the ones that he makes the children of God, born again into God's family. So what exactly does it mean to be born again? I've heard that phrase used in a number of different ways on a number of different religious contexts, and you probably have too. But, But all of that aside, what did Jesus mean when he said that you and I have to be born again? 
Well, notice Jesus replied to Nicodemus's confusion about this. Look at verse number five. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we've got to clear something up here because there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what Jesus meant, born of water and born of the spirit. So what is he talking about? Well, there are some that would say that being born of water refers to baptism. Now, there's a number of problems with that notion, and I'll just mention three. First of all, baptism is not mentioned anywhere in the context. You would have to press that notion into the story to make it say something that it doesn't say. Secondly, the idea of being born of water was recognized in that cultural context, and it had nothing to do with baptism. Rather, it referred to something that we're still very familiar with today. Um, Just before a baby is born, for instance, what happens? Well, the mother's water breaks. Now, that's how we refer to that phenomenon today, the water breaking. In that day, it was known as being born of water, which makes perfect sense when you think about it. And Jesus is simply referring to physical birth, which brings me to the third reason why being born of water cannot be referring to water baptism. Because in the very next verse, Jesus explains that he's referring to physical birth. Look at verse number six. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is making it very clear to Nicodemus. If you're going to be part of God's heavenly kingdom, you must be born not just physically, but born spiritually as well. Well, if you're listening to this, I think it's safe to assume that you've been born physically. But the real question is, have you been born spiritually into God's family? See, God is everybody's maker, but he's not everybody's father. And you might say, well, look, I feel very alive. Why do I need to be born spiritually? Well, it's because that when you and I were born physically, though by all accounts we appeared to be very alive, there was part of our being that part of you that you can't see, that was dead. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, remember back in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because, and I quote, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But Adam went on to live a long time after that, at least physically. His spirit, that part of us that is created for fellowship and friendship with God, died that day. And the Bible teaches us that ever since then, every person who is born physically, born of water, into this world are spiritually dead or alienated from God. Now, now that's not good news, but, but I'll demonstrate. For example, speaking to those who had been born again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, And God made you alive, who were once dead in trespasses and sins. And again, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, And you, who were dead, God made alive with Christ, having forgiven you all your sin. So what did he mean that they were dead? I mean, by all accounts, they looked alive. I mean, they were reading that letter that Paul wrote. But their spirit, that part of them that was created for fellowship and friendship with God, was dead. They didn't need to be physically born. That was already done. They needed to be spiritually born into God's family. Now, how about you? 
Did you ever come to the point in your life where you recognize your need to be born spiritually into God's family? Or is your spirit still dead? See, and that brings us back to how you are born spiritually into the family of God. Remember John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. See, getting into God's family is not something that you do. It is something that is done to you when you stop trying to make yourself right with God and you start trusting the finished work of Christ on the cross to make you right with God. 